Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello again, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my time capsule is the podcast where people tell me the five things from their life, anything at all from any time in their life, that they wish they had in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish or would like to have again or revisit, but they also pick one thing that they wish they could bury and forget, something they'd like to put in the ground and never think of again. My guest in this episode of My Time Capsule is the Welsh actor and novelist David Barry, who is best known for playing the boastful yet cowardly mummy's boy Frankie Abbott in the 1970s hit comedies Please Sir with John Auderton and Derek Guiler and its spin-off The Fen Street Gang, both written by John Edmund and Bob Larby, who went on to create The Good Life, Get Some In, Ever Decreasing Circles and Brushstrokes. But David's career, like so many of my guests, is much more than just two TV shows. Starting when he was just 12 years old, and encompassing the West End, touring, lots of other TV appearances in shows such as Frankula, After Hours, The Bill, The Woman in White, The Legacy of Reginald Perrin, A Mind to Kill, Never the Twain, Brookside, Carry On Teacher and Crossroads, among many others. Working with a host of astonishing actors and writing TV comedies and many novels and books. At 80 years of age, David Barry has had quite a life so far, so let's discover the five or maybe six things from his life that he'd want in a time capsule. 300, 300, 300 episodes. 300 odd episodes. God. I know. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, listen to and one of David Morrissey because oh, I, I like him as an actor. Yeah, me too. Me too. I was thrilled to talk to him, but I hardly had to say a word. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like me. I used to do a radio show down in Kent, mm. and I had Tom Baker on. Oh, I yeah. hardly had to interview him at all. He just took off, you know. <laughs> I worked with Tom just the other day. 
No. Yeah, we did one of those what, um, big finish, big finish things oh, right. over in you know on the way to Wadhurst. Yes, yes. Lovely job, and Tom's good fun, isn't he? Oh, he's great. <laughs> he's a great man. He's yeah. uh, years ago. Um, he was moving. He had moved to Tunbridge Wells for a while, and I lived in Rustall. And uh, people said, "Your mate, uh, Tom Baker." We bumped into him. We talked to him for an hour, and you know, you haven't met him yet. So I happened to go into Wetherspoons, the Opera House, mm. for something to eat. And as I came out. Tom's at the front holding court with all the wine. I bet. He's got an extraordinary energy, hasn't he? Uh, that's right. I love it. Yeah. yeah, well, when I first met him, we did a BBC 30-minute theatre together. Right. And I used to live in Highgate Village and he lived in Archway. And so we used to meet up and go. He loved walking around Highgate Cemetery. So oh, yeah. And he was the one who pointed out Karl Marx was right opposite Spencer. Marx and Spencer. <laughs> Really, that's brilliant. <laughs> How long have you been in Tunbridge Wells? Uh, I've been here 40 years. Me too, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. It's strange, isn't it? I remember arriving here and then having to get the train to London. So I arrived with plenty of time, found a seat, sat there. And just before I left, a man stood over me and he said, excuse me, I think you're in my seat. And I said, I don't think I am. I don't, Can you book seats to London on this? He said, no, but I always sit there. <laughs> yes, I know. The same thing, or virtually the same thing happened to me. I, I didn't realise one early morning I was going to a job, you know, half seven in the morning or something like that, and uh, I didn't realise there were queues of people in diagonals along the platform. And I just stood in one, door came, I got into the carriage and some guy nudged me. He said, we may as well not bother queuing. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> They have a system. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. I suppose if you do something regularly every day, you That's get right. in, yeah, fall yeah. into that trap, don't you? Yeah, yeah. But apart from that, it's a lovely town to live in, I think. I like oh, it, it is. It is, yeah. So we're going to talk, David, hopefully covering all sorts of areas of your life, but, <laughs> right. but, but things that may not necessarily come up elsewhere. We're going to talk about five things that you would choose. To have in a time capsule, yes, if you yes. could, yeah. as we go along, or, or any time you like, you can jump around. <laughs> right, right. Yes, leave yes, it yes. to your skills. <laughs> so, what would be the first thing you'd choose then? I'd probably choose a little toy black cat, which my parents gave me at the age of twelve when I first appeared at Theatre Royal Windsor. Really? It was a lucky little mascot. Was that your first appearance in a theatre? Yes, ah. first professional appearance at the age of twelve. Wow. What were you playing? I was playing um, Harlan in a play called Life with Father, which is an American play, mm. and uh, it has the record as the longest run on Broadway of a non-musical show. Right. And uh, it's been made into a film. I watched the film not so long ago on Talking Pictures, yeah. and uh, I was one of three brothers, and I was in a cute little sailor suit, and it was all about a tyrannical father. Right. And, uh, yeah, so it was um, an interesting play. And how did that come about then? Well, it come about, I should tell you that my my real name is not David Barry, it's Mary Wynne Jones. So obviously completely Irish then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that is yeah. very, very Welsh. Yes. It? So I grew up in North Wales and uh, we lived in a little place called Amloch, northernmost part of Anglesey. Right. And, very uh, remote then. Yeah. And uh, I wanted to be an actor from as long as I can remember, although we never saw any theatres. There weren't any theatres. But there was the Royal Cinema 
And my father was a London Welshman and he was in the civil defence during the war. And of course, after the bombing was really over, he and my mother, they met in London, moved back to North Wales. And, uh, or I say moved back, my mother was from North Wales. Mm. And uh, I was born in North Wales in 1943. Just avoiding the bombing then? Yes, yes. I was probably conceived in one of those underground shelters uh, (laughs) because my brother was 10 years older than me. And I remember my parents telling me that uh, he used to have nightmares sitting up counting in his sleep. Uh, up to 10 or something, which was the memory of the um, doodlebugs coming over and, and the engine would cut out and you right. had so many seconds before it dropped and there was an explosion. Yeah, how terrifying. Uh, yeah. So you'd hear the engine stop yeah. and then you'd wait then, to see if it landed on you. Yeah, yeah. 10 seconds, that was the count, is it? That was a, Some, something like that. Somebody yeah. once told me that the first 10 seconds of a flight are the most dangerous. And really? Whether that's true or not, I'm, I don't know, but it's stuck know. with me. And I, I always, when I yeah. take off, the moment we leave the ground, I count to ten. <laughs> right, right. So, yeah. so, so my parents, they, they loved the theatre and galleries and museums mm. and cinema. And, of course, the Royal Cinema at Amloch showed new programmes every two days of all the latest films. And my parents took me to see everyone. I can remember at the age of eight or nine going to see Jose Ferrer in Moulin Rouge all about Toulouse-Lautrec. Mm-hmm. And uh, one which was really impressed me was Viva Zapata with a very young Marlon Brando right. with a screenplay by John uh, Steinbeck. Didn't wow. get much better than that. No, amazing. And, uh, so you fell in love with acting through watching film then? Uh, yeah, I guess so, yes. Mm. And I remember once when my parents, we were off to the cinema, which I was excited about, mm. and uh, a town councillor that my father knew stopped and said, oh, I've got tickets here for Noson Lawen. Noson Lawen translates to Joyful Evening. So I grizzled and grumbled because I wanted to go to the pictures, you yeah. know. But uh, anyway, we ended up at this Noson Lawen. And I'm here to tell you, it was a far from joyful evening as dreary tenor followed dreary baritone and <laughs> dreary soprano. And the evening culminated in the most terrible one-act play. Even at the age of nine, I had enough critical acumen to know this was rubbish to what the Royal Cinema had to offer. Yeah, yeah. The only theatre experience I ever had was when my parents, we had a long weekend in Liverpool. And we went to the Empire Theatre to see um, the post-West End tour of Carousel. Oh, lovely. Now, I'd met Jerry Marsden, Jerry and the Pacemakers, when I was on tour, and he came to see our show, The Lads from Fen Street. Mm. And we really got on well together. And uh, I looked him up, and he's born in 1943, same age as me. Mm. He died two years ago, but anyway... I often wonder if his parents, at the age of nine, took him to see Carousel and that number, You'll Never Walk Alone, filtered into his head and became a hit for him. Of course. And, of course, it's now the Liverpool Football Club anthem. Well, that sounds likely. But, but, it? it sounds likely, but we'll never know. We'll now. never know. No. Oh, wow. So your parents being very keen on it, living in Anglesey, the only outlet was cinema. So how then do you end up in Windsor? In the theatre? Um, well, uh, we moved to um, South East England when I was 10 years old. Right. I failed the 11 plus because of maths. <laughs> um, and I went to this 
uh, school, which I hated with every fibre of my being, Mortlake Secondary Modern School, even the class teacher there probably didn't like me and my Welsh accent or something, and uh, I wasn't even allowed to go in the school play. Instead, I remember he put me in the boxing ring, and I thought, hey, this hurts. Yeah. I'm not into pain, you know. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, my parents, as I say, were keen on the theatre, and they were doing amateur dramatics in Twickenham, a place called Witten Welsh Society. Mm. And they were doing Emlyn Williams's Corn is Green. Lovely. And in it, there's a character called Idwell, who's a schoolboy, who has to speak Welsh. So I got the part. And did you grow up speaking Welsh, or was that just... Uh, yeah, oh, yes. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yes, um, I played Idwell, and another English boy came in to play another of the schoolboys, and he was going to Corona Academy Stage School. And I pestered my parents, can't you send me there? Everything to get out of Mortlake, you know. Mm. So um, they said, well, it's a fee-paying school. We can't really afford it. So we went along and we investigated anyway. And they took one look at me at the age of 12. And I only, only looked about nine years old. So they said, we guarantee we can get him enough work, professional work as a child actor to pay for the school fees. Right. Which is what happened. My parents never had to pay a single penny. Oh, brilliant. Because... I guess you know, don't you, that you have to have a licence if you're under the age of 12 to only do two performances a week and they have to cast somebody else, you know. Mm. You have, they have to have about three people playing. Yeah. Whereas at the age of 12, you can do eight shows a week. Amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yes. So I was in. <laughs> and that's yeah. how I ended up at Windsor in the, my first professional production before I'd even started at Corona. Lovely. And do you still have the little black cat that you're... I, I do. And I took it for a long while. I used to take it with me for theatre productions and things like that. But unlike a lot of actors, I'm not at all superstitious. I respect other people's superstition. I mean, I, I would all talk about the um, Scottish play. I wouldn't mention it yeah. just in case you're superstitious. But if somebody asked me to smash a mirror... I would. I can't see scientifically how that can affect my life for the next seven years. No, I agree. <laughs> Quite. Absolutely. I can understand how these things come about, how they're sort of not whistling backstage. Oh, yes, because it's irritating. And also, that's how the um, the flies used to communicate, apparently. The people in the flies... Oh, did they? Yeah, would communicate by whistling to each other. Oh, right. Which must have been rather intrusive on plays, I think. But they that just gave be. different whistles to say, now. And so if you whistle backstage, it's seen oh, as bad luck. Be before they had the electronic lights. And exactly. All that. Yeah, yeah. Someone will bring in you know, the backcloth. Oh, yeah. Well, I worked as a flyman once. Did you? Yes, I did as well. It's fun, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and what actors don't realise is you can see them, but they don't ever look up and notice they're being observed. No, <laughs> no. I liked it. I liked that job. I liked the precision of getting the thing. Oh, so yes, you, you have there. a standby, uh, a red standby thing, and then the green, that's where you're supposed to stop the... Yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. So uh, having done that, having done that play, how long did you do that for? Um, well, I guess a rep then probably would have been two or three weeks. Mm -hmm. um, and then I started at Corona. And it was very, very different from Mortlake. You know, um, kids there were almost film stars like Richard O'Sullivan and people like that, you yeah. know. I became great mates with him. Well, there's that whole era of those uh, television shows. That's right. It's, it's strange how... In that world then, you would have all mixed, wouldn't you? That's right. Yeah. That's right. Yes, and we all got on well together and we were all sent up people and all that sort of thing, you know. Yeah. And I must tell you this story, I've just remembered it. I think we must have been about 
17 years old. And Corona Academy was run by the principal called Rona Knight. And her sister ran an agency. So at a moment's notice, you'd be called out of class and Hazel would have phoned up, oh, we've got you an audition at such a... And Richard and I had an audition for a Noel Coward musical. Uh And we we didn't have any sheet music with us and we had to go up and sing a song. So Richard and I said, well, we'll go into Tin Pan Alley, you know, Denmark Street, Mm -hmm. get some sheet music. But we just shared it. I said to Richard, what do you know? He said, well, I've just seen uh, Gigi uh, thank Ed for the little girls. I I know that as well, as I said, so we'll, we'll, we'll share it. We'll get that one. So no coward was taking the auditions. Wow. So Richard went on before me and I heard him say, thank heaven for our little girls, for our little girls. Thank you very much. That was delightful. <laughs> and then I went on after him. What are you going to sing for us? Thank heaven for little girls. It was a slight pause. <laughs> I started. Thank heaven for little girls. For... Thank you very much. That was delightful. <laughs> <laughs> it's the best hook we've ever had. <laughs> Brilliant. Wow. So was it a disconnected voice from the dark? Yes, oh. yes, yes. But... Very distinctive voice, obviously. Yes, yes. You can say you've met him. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. I think that's fair I've enough. I've been hooked by Noel Khan, but it was very delightful. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> it's funny that time, isn't it? Because when you meet people who had television shows in those days, in the 60s and the 70s, yes. they all mixed with each other. There were lots of parties that were thrown and oh, events. that's and right. And also, I think it's the nature of the BBC and the, and the production houses at the time that everything was done there all done in one place. So you would be bumping into people all the time. I know. I remember going to a party much when I was older. This was long before I did Please Sir. But going to a party in Notting Hill and who was sitting down looked rather shy, was Tom Jones. Wow. And he just had his first number one. It's not unusual. You know? <laughs> but he was rather shy, you know, he was overwhelmed by it all, you know. Yeah, I should imagine so. But so did you go and speak a bit of Welsh to him? <laughs> no, I didn't. Oh, what a shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Make him feel at home. Yes. And he, that would have been before the nose job. Oh, oh did he have a nose job? He did, yes. I did. Oh, right. <laughs> So there we are. All right, well, let's put that gift from your parents, which is... Which is a little black cat, which I still have on top of my bookcase. Yes, to show that you're not suspicious, to have a black cat come into your dressing room and you not be... And and, and I I suppose I stopped taking it to the theatre when I got a little bit older, Mm. stopped taking it with me, because I thought, well, it's not going to make any difference to my performance, really. (laughs) No. (laughs) And I've only ever missed one show in about 68 years. Really? That's very good. And that was when I was 14 years old. And what was that? Just a flu um, or something? Uh, yes, it was. It was in the West End at the Phoenix Theatre with Paul Schofield. Wow. It was Graham Greene's "The Power and the Glory" mm. Mexican play, and Paul Schofield played the whiskey priest, you know, who was trying to escape Mexico during the revolution when Catholics were outlawed. Mm. And I played the Mexican boy who stopped him from because I wanted him to administer extreme unction to my mother. Mm. And uh, it was directed by Peter Brook, renowned director. Really? I went to Corona during the day for lessons and then had to meet my chaperone on Hammersmith Station. And uh, suddenly I had this terrible pain in my stomach as though somebody'd hit me. And somebody called an ambulance and I was taken to hospital. My parents were called and they arrived just in time after I'd just had an enema. <laughs> Constipation, that's all it was. Oh, dear. Because 
Little did they know that my dinner money was spent on chips and illicit cigarettes. <laughs> so um, I was lectured and then I wished it had been peritonitis because the disgrace of going into the theatre the next night. But everyone was ever so nice. And yeah. Paul Schofield just came up to me, put a hand on my shoulder and said, good to have you back. <laughs> oh, that's nice. Yeah. And I'll never forget the end of the run... Harry H. Corbett was in it, playing uh, the lieutenant of the police out to get him. And I got his autograph and I said, do you mind me asking what the H is for? He said, yes, it's so you don't get me muddled up for the man who has his hand up sooty. Of course, yeah. (laughs) Harry Corbett, yeah. Yeah, yeah. He probably said it to everyone, but but it was very funny. Yeah, lovely. So, in fact, in a way, you were lined up to do quite a classical acting career. Yes, yes, and it got even more classical because Peter Brook was then casting Titus Andronicus, which was the most prestigious show of all time because it was to tour Europe with Laurence Olivier and Vivian Lee, Anthony Quayle and Maxine Audley, Mm -hmm. and uh, people playing small parts like Ian Holm. And I auditioned for his grandson, young Lucius, and got the part. And so um, we were off to Europe, to a tour of Europe. And why it's such a great piece of history, we were the first company to go beyond the Iron Curtain at the height of the Cold War. This was 1957. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. And the company manager gave us a pep talk before we set off. This was in London, you know, and said, be very careful when we're in Yugoslavia and Poland not to talk about politics because even the waiters may be party spies. <laughs> and I thought, because of my love of cinema and seeing things like The Third yes, Man, yes. I, I loved all that. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I thought, yes, I'm right in the, yeah, yeah. In the middle of it all. Yes, and we rehearsed, obviously, in London and had the... Um, I think we had the dress rehearsal at the Scala Theatre, which no longer exists, in Charlotte Street in Fitzrovia. And uh, Olivier, of course, he was working every night while we were rehearsing. He was doing the entertainer at the Royal Court. Good Lord. And he finished on the Saturday night and we were off to Paris on the Monday. (laughs) They were incredibly hard-working people, weren't they? They were. So I worked with Tony Quayle and Maxine Audley, strangely. Oh, really? Yes. Yes, we did a play together and uh, they were lovely. But people don't remember Maxine Audley now, strangely. I know. I know. It's incredible. She was lovely. She was great. And I could tell from the reaction of all the older actors when she turned up for the first day of rehearsal that at some point they'd all fancied her. Uh, right, you could yes. tell that she had been a great beauty. Oh, yes, and, yes. And all, all these men turned into sort of rather shy little... Oh, hello, Maxine, how are you? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, rather yes, embarrassed. Because yeah, 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 yeah. they could all see in their eyes, they could still see her as this Well, when we were beauty. on tour, I'm sure what happened on tour stays on tour. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, uh, Olivier. I met Olivier just the once at Granada Television. Uh, it was very exciting. I thought it was... What really... was he doing on Granada? They were filming um, because his brother-in-law was one of the directors of Granada Television. Oh, was he? Plowright, David Plowright. Oh, right, right. And they were filming, well, at the time they were filming Lear. King Lear, yes, that's right. I remember seeing photos of that production and they had like a Stonehenge when when he started off. Mm. And then I toured with Tony Quayle for a number of years, did all sorts of things. He was just a delightful man. Yes, yes, that's right. Wow. All right, well, we've put the cat in, so what's second? Let's see where that takes us. Well, the second thing has to be, because this is a historical document, when we were in Warsaw, 
they chartered a flight for the ship. Because we were a company of 60 people, Mm. they chartered a flight from Warsaw back to London. And I had the menu. It was a specially written menu. It had on the front, it had BOAC and the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre Company, the pilot's name, and I got his to sign that. When you opened it up and saw they were putting on a five-course meal, starting off with soup, salmon, followed by filet mignon, um, strawberries and cream, all the cheeses you could think, and a wonderful selection of wines, Turkish or Virginia cigarettes. Good Lord. (laughs) You know, this was another world. Mm. And I got everyone to sign it. Olivier signed it over parsley, new potatoes, and (laughs) Vivian Lee signed it over coffee. Peter Brooks signed it, and he drew a little picture of an aeroplane on it. (laughs) And you still have this? I still have it. I brought it with me to oh, show let's, you. Let's have a look. Let's oh, I'll show look. it to you now, shall I? Yes, I'd love to have a look. Right. So just a little card. It's a little card, yes. But beautifully, Stratford Memorial Theatre Company, which of course became the Royal Shakespeare Royal Company. Company. yes. That's what it was called originally. It was called Shakespeare Memorial Theatre Company originally right. and run yeah. by Glenn Byam Shaw. Byam Shaw, yes. And then Tony Quayle took over, didn't he? Oh, did he? Yes, yes. yes. I think he did. And, it and in Titus Andronicus, in mm. those non-politically correct days, he played Aaron the Moor, which yes. he had to black up for, of course. And I open it and inside is just the signature of everybody. Yep. And there's Olivier, you see. Right in the middle, of course. Yes, yes. You go for that first, yes. <laughs> yes, yes, top of the bill, yes. Once you've signed it, everyone else will. <laughs> How extraordinary. Yeah, and there's Ian Home, you see. Yes. So who else would I find on there? Who else will you find on there? Basil Hoskins, did you know mm-hmm. him? Lee Montague somewhere. Um, and there's Peter Brook with his little aeroplane drawing. Amazing. Ralph Michael. Ralph Michael. Now, I did my first film with Ralph Michael, mm. Seven Waves Away, with Tyrone Power, and he played my father. Really? So I used to jokingly on Titus call him Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and he used to call me son. He was a lovely man. He was a very good-looking man, wasn't he? That's he right. kept that beautiful head of white hair for many years. That's right. And I, I last bumped into him at London Weekend Television. I think he was playing in four episodes of... Doctor at Large. Right. And uh, I had to explain to him my name change because, of course, I was still in Titus Andronicus marrying Wynne Jones. What made you change your name then? Well, I don't know whether I regretted it years later, but I had this friend of mine, an older actor, who said, when you attend an audition with a name like yours, people would be expecting you to speak with a strong Welsh accent, Mm -hmm. not the RP sound that you have. Mm. Because, of course, when I attended Corona Academy Stage School at the age of 12, 1955, this was pre-kitchen sink drama and all the regional accents like Saturday night and Sunday morning. Mm. And so you had to speak like the Queen, you know. Yeah. Somebody was talking to me the other day about the evolution of acting in a way. And I reminded him of that time when... I think it was Gilgood and Olivier swapped roles each night, didn't they? Yes. I think it may have been in The Critic. Oh, yes, they also swapped roles in Romeo and Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, that's right. Yes. They did. 
Mercutio and, and Romeo. And Romeo. A very good marketing boy, because you'd go and see it twice. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, you'd, yeah, 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 yeah. you'd want to see the other person play. That's right. And everybody at the time, people were saying that Olivier was far too naturalistic and far too That's straightforward, right. and he didn't act in the way that Gilgud did. And he came from a slightly older generation that had that much more sort of the sing-songy voice. And, the, and yet Gilgud admired... Olivier, and he gave him a sword that belonged to somebody like Keane. Keane, yes. I think I've heard that. Yes. yes, and which he used for, I think, maybe Richard III or something. Amazing. Yeah. But that is being aware of that line of actors, really. That's right. But they handing over the mantle. And when Gilgood played, I think, Cassius mm. in the film of Julius Caesar with Marlon Brando as Mark Antony, yes. he admired uh, Marlon Brando and offered to direct him in Hamlet. And... Uh, Brando considered it, but nothing ever came of it. Wouldn't that have been amazing? Yeah, yeah. Yes. When I was working with Tony Quayle, we did The Tempest, and I played young Ferdinand, carrying oh. my logs, oh, yes. and, and he played Prospero. But he also directed it, and he said, it's just, I don't know why I've done both, it's too much. He said, I had a friend who was going to play the lead role, who was going to play Prospero, but uh, he did his back in, and so oh. he couldn't do it. And I went, oh. I said, who is it? And he said, oh, I'm not going to tell you, you'll be too disappointed. And I said, well, no, Tony, I won't. I love working with you. And I really did love working with him. Yeah. I loved him dearly. And he said, well, all right then. He said, Richard Burton. And I went, <laughs> oh, no. And he went, I knew you'd be disappointed. <laughs> but imagine that. Oh, yes. And my parents took me to the Old Vic to see Richard Burton and Henry V. Really? Yeah, so I've seen his Henry. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, he was wonderful. And he got all the laughs between him and the Queen in the end, you know. Yeah. Isn't this a wonderful example, I think, talking to you, David, of how one person's life and career, people think, can be summed up in one little thing. Mm. And they would say, oh, yes, David, you were in Please, Sir. <laughs> yes. And you go, well, yes, for a little while. <laughs> yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But then all the other... All things, the other stuff comes out. Yeah. Extraordinary things Yes, well. yeah. Do you think that... Please, sir, then came along and you thought, how marvellous, this is wonderful, but in a way put a stop to that other stuff. Well, maybe it did to a certain extent. It's certainly as far as television concerned. It didn't put a stop to theatre because obviously people were only too glad for me to go on tour in such and such a play mm -hmm. after all mm -hmm. that, you know, because they like to have a, a name. A name with the title from Please, sir. And, Indeed, yes. But, you know, I think with the tellies it was harder. Right. Yeah. yeah, because we all said when uh, we came to the very last series of Fence Street Gang, there was Malcolm McPhee and Peter Cleel and myself. Uh, Peter Denyer wasn't in the last series because he'd already signed to do a summer season somewhere. And they were going to do Billy Liar. And we all said to Mark Stewart, any one three of us would like to be considered for Billy Liar. Mm. And he said to us, no, he said, they won't use you. You're too well known from the Fen Street Gang. Really? How strange, because yeah. now the opposite would be the, true. That's right. But then, no. Weird. Yeah. Well, yeah. all right. Well, let's put that extraordinary document with all those names. That's right. And that's right. Touring, and touring with those amazing and, and, and people. And I should tell you... I, I, before we go, I must ask, did you get to spend any time with Vivian Lee? Oh, all the time, all yes. The time. Oh, I asked that question because I heard 
Not that I ever came across it, but I've heard that when she was in a company, she was fantastically gregarious. That's right. And and they didn't stand on ceremony. They were Larry and Viv to the company, you know. Mm. And, uh, oh, yes, I went, myself and my chaperone, went on a speedboat when we were in Venice with them <laughs> to the um, island of San Giorgio Maggiore. Yes, Maggiore. And uh, saw all the paintings then. But what I really loved at the age of 14 was bouncing along in the speedboat at breakneck speed. And Vivian Lee caught my eye and she knew that's what I was thinking. But I think that actually, I bet she still loved that. You know, it's one thing to be a massive film star and to have everywhere you go, you know, light bulbs flash. But uh, I don't think people ever lose the thrill of, well, look at me. Look what no. I'm doing now. Whoever thought that would happen? Yeah, and of course, my chaperone. You see, she thought this is this is the tour of a lifetime. You know, with the Olivier's touring six capitals of Europe, mm. and she dropped being principal at Corona and became my chaperone. Right, and I thought, oh God, the principal of this. I'll be looking over my shoulder all the time. But it didn't happen that way because I think we bonded and became good friends, you know, and all that sort of thing. Yes. And in a way, being in those companies, you are being asked to take on the responsibilities of an adult. Yeah. And she knew a lot about Shakespeare. And we were listening to the um, show Tannoy, uh, the the show relay one Mm. night. And uh, she said, Olivier, he's lost his way. He's making (laughs) it up. But it's in a perfect iambic pentameter. So I dashed down onto the stage because I was always watching from the wings. And Olivier came off crying with laughter and said, I was talking absolute bollocks. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. In fact, he was sort of famous for that ability. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I I heard a story that he did it once and it was a matinee and a whole crowd of young school kids all sort of following the text. Yes. And he leant forward and said, I wouldn't bother if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> when we were in Venice, it was at the Teatro Le Fenici, which was this wonderful opera house, mm. but they didn't have um, automatic tabs that opened, curtains that opened. Mm. Um, the flunkies in 18th century costumes with powdered wigs used to open it, but they used to really milk it. And I used to start the second half with Olivier and Alan Webb at a dinner table, and I heard Olivier sigh as these guys were milking, so, and he said, oh, get on with it, and then he giggled, you know. <laughs> Vivian Lee was, she, she, she was, um, this was the end of their marriage, really. This was the last time they worked together, and right. she, she did have problems, uh, bipolar, and she also drank a lot, so she had great mood swings, you know, mm. which I occasionally witnessed, you know. We were in a restaurant in Vienna, the whole company having lunch, and they said, get rid of the boy, quick. Hands were clapped over my ears because I was going to hear some very, very colourful language, yeah. which in those innocent days you didn't hear, as she had a domestic with Sir Lawrence. Wow. It was a difficult marriage, wasn't it? It was. But nothing, nothing has been written about that tour, which is the most prestigious tour up until now. I brought out a book last year called Lawrence, Olivia and Vivian Lee, The Final Curtain, and it's all details of that tour. How fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, right. Well, I hope we get on to your writing. You've written a lot of books. 
Yes, 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 yes. Well, well, I'm not a person that has a hobby, you see. So. <laughs> and that's it. That's it, yes. Yes, in all sorts of areas as well, though. Yeah, written a children's book and, and mainly crime thrillers, mm-hmm. yeah. Would you say that's what you do now? Yes, mm. yes. In fact, I finished my latest book yesterday. Really? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Can you tell us what it's called? It's called The Film Buff's Guide, A Humorous History of Cinema. It's a big subject. yeah. So are you still a film buff then? From, yes, right, yes, from very from... much so. Yeah. But very much for the old films, you know. I'd, I'd sooner sit down and watch Sunset Boulevard than I would the latest blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I may be with you on that, I think. <laughs> I've had enough of CGI. Yes, yes, yes. Lovely. OK, so um, we've finished with the menu. So the question is, which of us sounds like they're 80? Me or the ever-youthful David Barry? Answer after these adverts. Although it's bloody obvious, isn't it? See you shortly. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome back. Yes, it's me, the 80-year-old. So let's get back to the Dorian Gray of the acting world, David Barry, and find out what other things he'd want in his time capsule. We finished in the menu and, and the Titus Andronicus, mm-hmm. and then uh, things became harder after that because obviously the parts became smaller, you know, because actually young Lucius was quite a big part because mm. Vivian Lee in Titus playing my Aunt Lavinia, uh, she has her tongue cut out and her hands cut off early on in the play. Mm. So it becomes a non-speaking part. So I had almost as many lines as Vivian Lee. Extraordinary. I know. So anyway, uh, after that, things became a little bit harder because I the parts got smaller. I was doing loads of tellies like um, carrier bag, sir, and, you know, as page boys and mm-hmm. telegram boys and all that sort of thing. But that's a good living, isn't it? It's a good living, yes. Mm-hmm. I did a... I could, I could 
remember doing, I only found this out recently. I did a show called Hotel Imperial, which starred Vic Oliver as a band leader, because he was a band leader. Mm. And he told a story, and there was a story in the hotel, different story each week, and there were people in it like Donald Pleasance and Bonacolino was in the one I did. And I looked up Vic Oliver, and he was an Austrian Jew, and he escaped Nazis, and he was a comedian, and he took the mickey out of the Nazis and all, and he was in Hitler's black book. So had Hitler won the war and become British, Mm -hmm. uh, he would have been annihilated. He was on his list. Yes. another one, quiz question for you. Who was the first ever person to appear on Roy Plumley's Desert Island Discs? I've given you the clue. Vic Oliver? Yeah. There we are. There we are. I only found that out recently. Which shows how famous he would have been. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yes. Anyway, I was out of work, and I'd said Richard O'Sullivan was a great mate of mine, and uh, he was doing a film called Walt Disney's The Prince of the Pauper at the Shepperton Studios. Mm. And I was cleaning offices to try and earn some money at the British Motor Company based in Shepherd's Bush, right? So I was going in the evening cleaning the offices. Mm. And Richard said to me, uh, he said, I'll have a word, I'll get you a job doubling for for me and standing in. Right. So I said, oh, great, right. So I did. And, and that's when I discovered these wonderful matte shots, right? I'd be doubling for Richard in the long shot with the villain, also a double, taking me towards this door stuck in the field. Well, the door eventually became a big monastery, you know, because they colour it in. Good Lord. Yeah, and that was a match shot, I tell you. Anyway, I said to Richard one weekend, I said, oh, have a great weekend, Richard. And he said, he tapped the side of his nose and said, uh, and you'll have a good week next week. I said, what do you mean? He wouldn't tell me. So I got to the Shepperton studio on the Monday morning and they said, uh, we're three weeks behind schedule. Richard's only played one scene. And his contract's run out and he starts work today on the Cliff Richard film, The Young Ones. Would you take over? Good Lord. (laughs) So my status and the money changed overnight. Overnight. But, of course, the money isn't immediate. So the car dropped me off. And I say, drop me off just Shepherd's Bush. I only lived around the corner because I didn't say, drop me off at BMC. I'm going in to clean the offices. (laughs) A day's work. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, it's a tough business. It is. That's part of it, isn't it, that you can be earning a lot of money and then have a period where it's spread out over the whole thing. That's right. right. It can be quite average. Yes, that's right. So what are we putting in? What's the third thing you want to put in? Well, the third thing I'd want to put in is belongs to my daughter, actually. It's a recording of my daughter. She writes poetry, and she's had a book of poetry published, and she filmed it. She filmed a poem called Pigeonhole English, and it's on YouTube. She does every single accent in the British Isles, from Geordie to Bristol to Northern Irish... It's Emma Jolliffe, his own married name, and uh, she does pigeonhole English, and it's brilliant. brilliant. And a friend of mine watched it, and he said, she can't be a daughter of yours. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. You've jumped about a bit. <laughs> I, I always think it's, it's interesting when you think of your character in Please Sir, 
It's the most memorable character. That's what I would say about it. Yeah, because yeah. it's the outsider, isn't it? Yes, it's a strange thing because when I auditioned for it, the three of us auditioned. There was Peter Denyer, who who I'd already worked with in the West End. Yeah, in a very short play, ten days it ran. Oh. Zigzagga about football. I don't. Yeah, I do remember it. Yeah, yeah. that that just ran for ten days. Ten days. Good well, Lord. Peter Bridge, who put it on. His son loved football and he'd seen the National Youth Theatre production of it. Yeah. And uh, he said, oh, you ought to do it professionally, Dad. So he did it with a cast of 80, all on equity contracts. Oh, my Lord. And it bankrupted him. Of course, yeah. It had a box office advance of something like 43 quid. Oh, no. Yeah, so poor old Peter, and he was he was a lovely man as well. Uh, but anyway, I auditioned with Peter Denny, who had already worked with in Zigazaga, and Malcolm McPhee, we auditioned. And when I auditioned for Frankie Abbott, bear in mind, as I write thrillers, I was already a great Jimmy Cagney and Humphrey Bogart fan on all those thrillers. Yeah. So when I read for part of Frankie Abbott, I gave the Jimmy Cagney um, audacious shoulder shrug, you know, and all that sort of thing. So it paid off. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's an interesting part as well, isn't it? It's the person who has the front to pretend that he's the big I am. But in fact, he's the most scared. And... He's the most cowardly, yes. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I think clearly he was there to be a source of ridicule. I think that actually the nation sort of slightly fell in love with him. That's right. Well, it's everybody who falls on a banana skin, isn't it? It's like uh, Tony Hancock, isn't mm-hmm. it? He's, he's pretentious and he thinks he knows more than anyone else. Yeah. But he comes unstuck, you know. Ingmar Bergman, half the people around here have never heard of her. You know, that's the banana skin, isn't it? Yeah. And again, Harold Steptoe was exactly the same, wasn't he? Aspirations, but he always showed himself up. Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so your daughter's poetry, sorry. That recording would go in my uh, time capsule. Lovely. It's got to, because I think every single dialect, you know, is brilliant. It's amazing. We'll put a link to it. I shall find it and put a link to it yes. on the website so oh, people brilliant. can have a listen. Yes, yeah, great. Yes, and we're happy for people to take a pause at this point. Go and have a cup of tea or something. That's <laughs> it. And listen to that. And then come back to us. David, so that's three things. That's three things we put in. Is that three things? Three things, yeah. Yes. We're on to number four. Well, number four takes me back, really, to Wales. Probably about ten years ago, the Guardian newspaper on Saturday used to do a supplement called Family Life. Mm-hmm. So I wrote about my mother and father and our dog, and my brother, I wrote an article uh, which they published. So I would like to put that article in my time capsule Mm. uh, because the article was about, really, my brother going off to do his national service in Malaya and the dog. Two years later, when he was demobilised, he came back and the dog heard him coming from a mile off. Who says dogs have no memories? But he went berserk, the dog. He went absolutely, he, was, he ran out the cottage where we lived to greet my brother after two years coming back from the army. How extraordinary. Yeah, so I wrote about that. And uh, also it had a rather sad end because um, my parents died respectively when I was, my father when I was 18 and my mother when I was 19 and the dog outlived them. So your parents were quite old when they had you, is that right? If your yes, that they older? yes, they would have been, which is why my father in the war was in the civil defence. He wouldn't have gone in the army, you no. know, because I presume 
he would have been about 36. Right, so too old to... He didn't want that. He was a pacifist anyway, so mm. he would sooner have been rescuing people, you know, so... Yes, equally worthwhile. Yes, yes. What does your brother do now? Oh, he died a long time ago. Did he? Yeah, yeah. When I... in Oh, gosh, I've got to tell you this. Again, mm. <laughs> sorry, sad story. Yeah, no, that's right. Anyway, um, when we finished Please, uh, the film, we went into... Um, Fen Street Gang, and mm. the first series was going to be 26 episodes, Good you know, God. six months' work lined up. Lovely. You know. Great. And I was doing the um, very, very first episode, and you know we're all a little bit insecure, really, you know, as actors. You know, you just don't know whether you've done a good job or not, really. Mm-hmm. Although comedy is better because if people are laughing, then you know you're working okay. Yes. But it was the second day of the rehearsal in the rehearsal room of Fence Street Gang, and I was performing, and I could see Mark Stewart, who was the producer. He came and he kept staring at me. Anyway... When we finished the run-through, he came, put his arm around me and said, David, I'd like a word with you, in a very sombre voice, and Mm. took me into a rehearsal room. And he said, I'm sorry to tell you, your wife's just rung and uh, your brother's died in Australia. And uh, I had this guilt trip, terrible guilt trip, because my immediate reaction was, thank God he's not sacking me. (laughs) <laughs> do you know what I mean? I do know what you mean. And, and you know, oh, Lord, I, yeah. I, I, for years afterwards, I was thinking, so, oh, how God, dare how, I? how dare I? Yes, yeah. yes. But a lot of people told me, don't worry, it's only natural. It's completely natural. That yeah. was the thing that was at the front of your mind. And I think quite often when you're told something that shocking, yes, your reaction to it is not what it would be in the movies. It can take people a long time to process it. Yes, yes. And in a way, because we were then doing something like, I I think we were contracted to do 20 episodes out of 26, you know, I had to then knuckle under to just get on with the job. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't really think about it until you'd finished. No, that's right. That's right. And in a way, my my brother had, um, he and his wife and child had immigrated to Australia maybe seven years prior to that. So that's almost like a bereavement anyway. Yes, you're used to the idea of not seeing them. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I was doing a play when my mother died, sort of suddenly and rather tragically, and uh, yeah. went to the hospital and saw her, and then got in the car to come back to the theatre. Yeah. My yeah. wife said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going back. I've got to do the play tonight. And yeah. she said, no, you can't. You can't. And she was right. I was, would have been stupid. But I did yes. go back the next day. Yes, yes. Well, I was in probably the most boring play of all. It's called Home at Seven. I was playing the lead in it. This was in rep. Home at seven, which is what the audience wish they were. Absolutely, yes. I'm a, I wish I'd said that. Yeah. <laughs> I anyway, bet you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, Arthur Lowe was in it on tour. Fabulous. At the Alex Birmingham, and his wife was in it. Mm-hmm. And he died in the interval. He had a heart attack and died in the interval. And she went on in the second act with the understudy. Good Lord. Yep. But I can understand him dying because it's the most boring play of all. <laughs> I really... <laughs> you couldn't take any more. No, it's wordy. Yes, I, I know a number of people who've done things like that. Simon Williams, who I've had on this podcast, the same thing, his father died and he had to go on. Oh, and they were doing a play together at the time, playing right. father and son, and oh, the next gosh. night he went on with the understudy playing his father. Gosh, yeah. 
Yes, it's strange how you can. It is strange. You isn't can it? put it all is. those things aside and it, just concentrate on the work. That's right. Well, you hear of all sorts of stories, don't you, about doctor theatre people carrying on when they've broken their leg and stuff mm, like that. Mm. Ballet dancers, even, and, and and they come off stage at the end of the show and they're in pain. How extraordinary! Okay, lovely. So that's your fourth thing then. Right, right. Right. So we have one thing left, which is something you'd like to reject in a way, sort of bury in the time capsule and forget. Um, it is my performance in Crossroads. <laughs> if the tapes have been wiped, it doesn't matter. Mm. But if they haven't been wiped, I would like to wipe them. <laughs> <laughs> because it came about, you see, flattery, never go for flattery. You know, it gets you into such hot water. A friend of mine was playing a copper in um, Crossroads mm. and I went up for what they call a general interview. In other words, if a part comes up you're right for, you'll get cast perhaps. Mm. So I went up for this general interview in Birmingham, came back, and this friend of mine and his boyfriend, we were drinking in Wimbledon Village and we'd had quite a few drinks. And he said, you know, what you ought to do is there's a florist opposite, Interflora, Go and send her a bunch of flowers and say, thank you for one of the nicest interviews I've yet had in the business. Hmm. And I said, no, go on, don't be silly. They won't fall for that. that. Yeah, but a few more drinks later, I did. (laughs) A fortnight later, I got a party crossroads, Um. but I was totally miscast because this was about five years before I played a 15-year-old in Please, Sir, and I was playing... (laughs) <laughs> they sent a boy to do a man's job. I was playing a big West End agent who was saying to Carlos the chef, I could do things for you. I could turn you into a star, a singing oh, chef. And it was embarrassing. Mm. But eight episodes in one week, so good money. But I looked at my performance when I saw it and I, I wept. It was, <laughs> it was bad. Well, some people would say that it was full of lots of bad performances. It was incredibly quick, wasn't it? Oh, yes. At the time, it was five a week. And I do love Julie Walters and Victoria Wood, Acorn Antiques, because it sums it up brilliantly. Everybody's slightly out of shot. (laughs) (laughs) I saw a clip of it just the other day. I saw Noel Gordon talking to somebody and then going through a door and the camera following her. And, of course, as she goes to the door, the camera stays with her, and then she steps back to open the door and bumps into the camera. (laughs) It gives her quite a bash on the back of her head. Yes, yes. And then she carries on into the scene. She starts talking, and then when the next time she doesn't have a line, you can see her look off camera, probably to the director or something, and she pulls the funniest face, as much as to say, we got away with that. (laughs) But they really didn't. I mean, 24 minutes, 30 seconds on ITV. You know, if you cut 30 seconds out, you're in trouble. Mm. And so we, in one scene, myself and Anthony Morton, who was Carlos Fischer, we cut 30 seconds out. And uh, the director came down onto the floor for the second half. He said, um, he said, oh, we won't do a retake. He said to Sue Nichols, he said, could you talk on the telephone for 30 seconds? And, <laughs> and she said, what about? He said... I don't care as long as it's 30 seconds. <laughs> wow. That's what it was like. Yeah. Good Lord. <laughs> well, all right, we'll take that performance then. We'll take that put it in there. Like putting it through one of those things at the airport that will wipe it. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. So we've got one more thing to put in that you want to keep. 
What I would like to keep is a hardback copy of Under Milkwood because it means a lot to me, Under Milkwood, because originally when we were doing Pleaser, Richard Davis, who played the Welsh teacher, said, oh, uh, Lewisham Concert Hall, because he lived near there, mm. Forest Hill or somewhere, they've asked that Pleaser do He said, let's do Under Milkwood, a performance of Under Milkwood. So after we finished rehearsals for Pleaser, we used to hang around and we used to rehearse under Milkwood, <laughs> in their rehearsal rooms. And my wife came in, she was in it, and uh, Richard's wife, they used... In those days, there wasn't so much security. They used to arrive at LWT and the security just said, yeah, just go up to the such-and-such yeah, such floor and all that. In you go. In you go, yeah. And uh, we did it at Lewisham Concert Hall, and it was sold out. Mm. It was marvellous. And we did it quite simply, Almost like a reading, you know, yeah. except we learnt it. Mm. And uh, then we did it at Stratford East. Malcolm McPhee became an impresario, probably the youngest ever impresario, put it on at Theatre Royal Stratford East. Lovely. And we did a proper production of it, which Peter Denyer directed. Mm. Then I, with Malcolm, toured it with a cast with David Lloyd Meredith, who used to be in Softly Softly, Meredith Edwards, who was... A film actor from years ago was in things like The Cruel Sea and Above mm. Us the Waves and all that, those sort of things. And, yeah, we toured it as a proper production with proper scenery and everything, a number one tour all over the country. Oh, lovely. And you were going back to your roots. And I was going back to my roots, and it's a wonderful play. And eventually I was doing panto up in um, Stafford, and the theatre manager said, I love Under Milkwood. He said, I tell you what, if you can get six actors together to do a reading of Under Milkwood, I'll pay, this is like 1980, something like 1982, so mm -hmm. 1981. He said, if you get six actors together, I'll give you 2,000 quid for three nights, three performances. Brilliant. Yeah, so Peter Child, he played... Detective Sergeant Rycott in Minder. Mm. I said, Peter, would you like to play Mr. Waldo another part? He said, oh, I love that play, yeah, I'll do it. And he did it for fortnight's rehearsal and just a share of the box office just for three nights because he was then going back into Minder after that. <laughs> and we were then toured it with Richard Davis and Peter Cleal, who played Duffy in Police, and we toured it for, ooh, for a long time. It was great. It is a beautiful play, isn't it? It is. And then I said up to, uh, to Richard after that, I said, um, we've got the goodwill. We've filled theatres and community centres. It brought in extra chairs and all that sort of thing. Uh, we've got all the goodwill. What could we do that doesn't require a lot of scenery? Mm -hmm. And then one day in the shower or in the bath, I suddenly thought, radio doesn't need scenery. So I thought, I know, why don't we do thing called Radio Fun. We'll do The Goons, Take It From Here, The Glums, uh, Hancock's Half Hour, mm -hmm. Round the Horn, like in an old BBC microphone on stage with the sound effects. And they all said, yes, great idea, we'll do that. I had to get the rights to all these. And uh, Spike Milligan's uh, agent, she was a lifelong friend of Spike oh, yeah. Milligan. And I said, BBC Enterprises, they want 6% of the box office. So she said, well, Spike owns all the Goon Show scripts himself. She said, 
just tell the BBC to fuck off. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I imagine phoning up, hello, is that the BBC switchboard, you know? Yes. Anyway, Barry took for Round the Horn, who was so funny. He phoned me up one day. He said, oh, I don't want any money for it, you know, because he co-wrote it with Marty Feldman. He said, yeah. I don't want any money for it. I can speak on behalf of Marty even without the aid of Doris Stokes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they're to be treasured, aren't they, those periods of your career where you, you're just going around with people you like, That's doing right. something you enjoyed doing, and that's it right. seems to please the audience as well. They that's, come every that's night. That's right. Think so. well, this but is- I tell you what, that's one of the hardest parts to learn. I did the Richard Burton in Under Milkwood mm. for when we toured because you're not interacting with people. It's almost straight-out-front poetry. Yes, Narrating it. Narrating it, yes. yes. But we did, and, you know, it sticks with me now. I could I could give you the all the opening now if you wanted it. I'd, I'd be happy with that. No, 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 no go on, give me some of it. To begin at the beginning, it is spring, moonless night in the small town, starless and Bible black, the cobble street silent and the hushed quarters and rabbit's wood limping invisible down to the slow black, slow black crowback fishing boat bobbing sea. The houses are blind as moles, though moles see fine tonight in the snouting velvet dingles. There in the muffled middle by the pump and the town clock, the shops in mourning, the welfare hall in widow's weeds, and all the people of the lulled and dumbfound town are sleeping now. It's amazing poetry, isn't it? It is. And it's funny as well. Yeah. Yeah. It's fabulous characters in it. I've done it, but I think I probably did it with rather a shameful Welsh accent. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it doesn't matter. I heard the original one which he did in America Mm. before it was done, by because he was dead by the time the BBC did it. Um, He did it in America where he read the first narrator and he had Americans doing it. And, you know, Lily Smalls has a real Bronx accent. Oh, where'd you get that face from, Lil? (laughs) But it still works. It still works. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's the painting of the picture of the whole thing. Small town America, I suppose it would work. That's right. Uh, Yeah, it's like, it's it's universal, isn't it? Indeed. Well, that was gorgeous. Thank you. Okay, so um, that's the final thing, putting the time capsule. That's it. It's it's been fascinating to talk to you. Thank you very much. I'm sure we could record another 20 things for you to go (laughs) uh, there. Yes, all the drunks I've played with. (laughs) (laughs) Lovely. There we are. Thank you. All right, lovely. Thank you, Mike. You have been listening to My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my guest, David Barry. Wasn't that fascinating? If you enjoyed it and would like to hear more, then we have over 300 episodes for you to choose from. And if you subscribe to this podcast, we'll send you all new episodes as they're released. Please do leave a rating for this show before you go, hopefully five stars. You can download the theme tune by Pass the Peas Music from Spotify if you fancy hearing it in full and without me talking all over it. My Time Capsule and I are both available on social media if you'd like to contact us. Or there are links in the description of this episode to us and Acast Plus where you can get this podcast ad-free and a little bonus episode every now and again. This was a cast-off production for Acast, produced by John Fenton Stevens. Thank you for listening all the way to the end. I still find it impressive that anyone does that. And for those few intrepid listeners, I like to leave them with a joke. Of varying quality, as they'll know. Varying from poor 
to Pora. But I'm not going to do that today. No, I'm going to arm you with a few thoughts that should help you remember someone's name. Very useful in life. All you have to do is visualize something about the name that will remind you of it when you meet that person again. Okay? So, for example, if their name is Neil, imagine yourself being knighted by them and having to kneel down. Yeah, you're getting the idea. Uh, If, say, for example, she's called Olive, like my mum was, imagine a toothpick in her head. Eileen, she's got one leg shorter than the other. Russell, well, obviously, clothes are made out of paper. Matt, imagine him lying on the floor just inside your front door. Jack is, of course, the man you need to have if you have a flat tyre. Stu has meat and potatoes and gravy running down his face. And finally, Roland. Imagine that all Rolands are actually called Mr. Butter. Roland. Yeah, you won't forget that in a hurry, will you? Bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.